Welcome to the Idea Pod, a podcast dedicated to exploring and interrogating applied ethics at the University of Leeds. Everybody, welcome to the Idea Podcast. Uh, today we're welcoming Amal Maksud Shah, who is one of our MA alumni. So, Amal, could you just start by introducing yourself and telling us what you're doing now and what made you choose to do the Biomedical and Healthcare Ethics MA with us? Yeah, well, thank you for having me. So, um, I'm currently a fourth year medical student at the University of Leeds um, and like you said I integrated at the Idea Centre in Ethics last year. Um, I mainly chose to integrate in Ethics I think because it's an interest of mine that's sort of grown since beginning medical school, um, sort of whether that was through teaching or group discussions and just the various case studies that I'd seen on placement as I'd gone through the years um, and I think the good thing about integrating in ethics is it's something that's instrumental to clinical practice, regardless of what speciality you go into. Um, so taking this course has really helped to increase my confidence and help me to sort of develop the skills that I think I'll need in order to address any ethical issues that I might face during my career. Thanks very much. And um, I hope that it, I hope that it does have that uh, impact for you. Um, I just realised I forgot to introduce myself as well. So my name's Natasha McKeever. I'm the programme leader for the online biomedical and healthcare ethics. And uh, last year I was the programme leader for the campus biomedical and healthcare ethics course as well. Um, so just moving on to your dissertation, which you're going to be presenting today and we're going to be discussing. Um, could you just tell us um, well, just introduce what the topic is and tell us a bit about why you chose this topic. Yeah, sure. So um, my dissertation was uh, looking at whether um, information about a patient's genetic condition should remain sort of strictly confidential. Um, and I think the main reason I chose to look at this is because um, classically and traditionally, confidentiality is sort of considered at an individual level, um, whereas the familial components of genetics so um, does set out and challenges some of those um, traditional approaches. Um, and I think also um, it has been shown that um, a lot more genetic tests have been entering mainstream practice. And so I think it's important for clinicians to know how to navigate these sort of ethical issues um, as they become more um, common. Thank you very much. And um, you've presented this uh, dissertation for us at the medical ethics evening that we had in October. And um, we really, really loved your presentation. You also did very well in the dissertation. And um, so uh, we've asked you to come back and record this podcast with us so that more people could listen to what you've got to say um, and hear about some of the ethical issues that is raised by this topic so thank you again for your time no problem um, now just I'm going to ask you if you could uh, just present your dissertation to us um, I know you've got a presentation prepared 
And then following that, I'll just ask you a, a couple of follow on questions about it. Yeah. So I'll hand over to you now. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. Um, so, yeah, like I said before, um, my dissertation was looking at whether or not um, a patient's genetic um, information should be kept confidential. Um, and so I began my dissertation by looking at the current practice and guidance. Um, and I found that like other forms of healthcare information, um, genetic information is covered by the principle of confidentiality um, and that the GMC indicate in instances where the, there is public interest in knowing this information. Um, so, for example, if it would leave others at risk of death or serious harm, that non-consensual disclosure is justified. Um, and I found this to raise um, an ethical conflict um, between two uh, principles. So the first was um, maintaining patient autonomy um, in terms of a right to confidentiality and privacy. And second is the utilitarian principle to protect vulnerable individuals from harm. Um, and then in order to explore the overall question, um, I think I first uh, looked at the benefits of genetic testing and keeping genetic information confidential and um, try to clarify the interest in these two. So I identified two proband interests with respect to genetic information. Um, and the first type was the utility of having genetic test. And the second was then um, the interest in ensuring that the resulting information is kept confidential and private. So um, I assessed the clinical and personal utility of genetic testing. Um, and the clinical utility refers to the ability of any test to prevent or improve health outcomes through the uptake of treatment conditioned on test results. Um, and then looking more specifically at genetic testing, um, the information that it provides helps to improve the accuracy of diagnosis. Um, and it also promotes improvements in determining risk, predisposition and prognosis for the individual. So there was a clear clinical utility to genetic testing. Um, and then looking at personal utility, um, which involves considering the social and psychological implications of the test. All genetic tests have the capacity to ameliorate uncertainty to some extent um, and can provide information to inform family planning. So given this, I made my first claim that knowing genetic information about oneself is in the best interest of the individual, and this is because it promotes their health. Um, I then moved on to look at the second type of interest, um, which is ensuring that the resulting genetic information is kept confidential and private. Um, so looking at the value of genetic confidentiality first, there are two main reasons for this in the literature. Um, so the first is that it underpins the clinician-patient relationship um, by permitting individuals the opportunity to divulge any information that they have about themselves. Um, and the second is it is instrumental in achieving trust. Um, however, um, it does remain that sometimes maintaining confidence um, that the patient's divulge can affect others. And therefore, I turn to determine whether or not confidentiality is an absolute principle. So um, Kipnis supports unqualified confidentiality by arguing that clinicians have special duties to their patients, which includes this principle. And whilst I did agree with Kipnis that special duties do exist, um, I did uh, find that these duties are not necessarily unqualified. So um, in the case of genetics, the Court of Appeal does state that healthcare professionals may have a duty to relatives. And I thought I took this um, to believe that this would extend the special duty um, that clinicians have to include them. 
Um, and then elsewhere, Kennedy discusses confidentiality as being sort of clearly obstructionist um, and therefore looking at um, the clinical and personal utility of the test, not permitting at risk relatives access to the information could obstruct them from deriving such benefits. So given all of this, um, I then concluded that whilst there is value to confidentiality, um, it's not absolute. Um, and then uh, the importance of confidentiality can actually be understood as a right to privacy. Um, so I next moved on to look at the value of genetic privacy. Um, and there are many ethical commentators who actually advocate genetic, uh, genetic exceptionalism. Um, and this is where the information um, is treated with greater privacy than other forms of health information. And there are three main reasons for this. Um, so the first is that genetic tests um, have the capacity to indicate the likelihood of future harm, um, as well as generating information pertaining to current harms. The second is that there is a risk of genetic discrimination um, against the individual. And the third is that privacy facilitates individuals self-governing their relationships. Um, however, the call for genetic privacy um, has faced objection um, in sort of recent years um, and therefore to consider and discuss whether the right to privacy is absolute. So um, Murray argues that genetic exceptionalism is unjust because it inherently affords preferential protection to individuals with genetic disease without reason to do so. Um, he gives the example of dementia. So similarly to genetic information, um, dementia also has some prognosticating capacity. Um, however, because the genetic component is um, is either under-researched or is necessarily there, um, we don't afford the same level of privacy um, to information regarding dementia. Um, additionally, um, Gostin argues that individuals do not necessarily want absolute control over their health information, but rather the assurance of respect. So um, given this, I then made my second claim, um, which is that there is value to keeping genetic information confidential and private. However, neither of these principles are absolute. Um, so I knew that confidentiality is traditionally considered at the level of the proband. Um, however, genes are widely shared by biological relatives, um, which challenges this consideration. Um, therefore, it was important for me um, to determine who the genetic information belongs to. So to do this, I looked at uh, two prominent models within the field. So the first being the joint account model and the second being the person account model. So by the joint account model, genetic information is shared by more than one, uh, one person and therefore it should be made accessible to all relatives. Um, and there, there are two main arguments to support this model. So the first is the principle of justice. Um, and this is to say that the proband should not be able to benefit from uh, familial genetic information, uh, which is often used to construct a family history um, when consulting with genetic um, clinicians and yet prevent relatives from accessing such benefits. And the second is that at-risk relatives who do develop symptoms um, may lose trust in clinicians who they acknowledge have a duty of care towards them. However, um, I argued that by appealing to the principle of justice, the model appears to endorse the non-consensual disclosure of genetic information to facilitate research. And this is because individuals similarly derive benefit from population level genetic studies. Therefore, I argued that the joint account model fails to establish the familial claim to genetic information. So I then moved on to look at the person account model. Um, and the person account model determines genetic information as belonging to the proband. 
and therefore involves upholding confidentiality as the default. So um, there are three arguments um, in support of this model. So the first is that individuals have autonomy to determine what happens to their genetic information. Um, the second is that it maintains trust. And this is important as breaches could prevent the proband from engaging with clinicians. And the third is by the burden of proof resting with those who desire to breach confidentiality, um, it is in accordance with patient centred care. So um, having looked at these models, I then made my third claim, which is that genetic information belongs to the proband and therefore prima facie genetic information is confidential and private. So um, by accepting the personal account model, the proband is able to exercise their autonomy in a right um, as a right to privacy. Um, so I next address the question, can an individual exercise their autonomy in a way that harms the interests of others? So I began by outlining the harm principle with reference to current guidance. So the harm principle holds that the autonomy of individuals, um, in this case, the proband's right to confidentiality and privacy, should only be limited to prevent harm to others. Accordingly, the principle permits non-consensual disclosure in instances where there is a risk of harm. Um, the justification to limit autonomy um, can be outweighed by reasons not to regulate. Um, in this instance, this would be um, the proband's right to privacy um, and an interest in confidentiality. However, I've already previously established that neither of these principles are absolute and therefore an appeal to these wouldn't limit, uh, wouldn't limit non-consensual disclosure. Um, so given this, um, I moved to establish my fourth claim, which is as per the harm principle, the proband cannot exercise their autonomy in terms of a right to confidentiality and privacy in a way that harms the interests of others. Um, it remained, though, that to support the application of the harm principle, I had to prove genetic disposition to be a harm. Um, and to do this, I assessed three views as proposed by Khan. So um, I first looked at the technical harm view, which considers genetic disposition according to its two negative effects. So Khan argues that a baby born with a genetic condition would have um, adverse effects on their self-interests. Um, and that without the act of conception, their self-interest would not exist. Whilst I did agree um, with the personal interests of the baby being in a worse condition, I disagreed with Khan's assessment um, regarding the first. Um, this is because self-interests are dependent on the individual and their genetic condition is present from birth. Therefore, I don't think they would realise the adverse effects on their self-interest as their desires are in accordance with their constant state of being. So um, given this, I established that this view fails to conceptualise genetic harm. Um, I then moved on to look at the um, constitutive harm view, which compares the individual to an unharmed genetic standard. Um, Kant argues that there are two difficulties that arise with this conclusion. So the first is that there is no genetic standard, uh, standard with which to compare the individuals. And the second is to compare a harm state to an unharmed genetic standard is to compare two different people. So, for example, if an individual had cystic fibrosis and you um, repaired their faulty gene, um, they would no longer be the same individual. So um, I disagreed um, with Khan's first assertion because although there is not a single genome that can be used as the unharmed genetic standard, um, it could be argued that the genetic harm refers to mutations and not polymorphisms, which are normal variations um, in someone's genome. Um, I also found the assertion that a person's genome is not distinct from their identity to be problematic. 
And this is because if we suppose that human cloning is a possibility, the resulting individuals would be genetically identical, but different persons in a moral sense. However, despite not agreeing with either of Khan's objections to this view, I still found the view unconvincing. And this is because it remains that healthcare professionals treat individuals with genetic disease. And therefore, if the non-identity problem that is central to this view is accepted, it is in opposition to clinical practice. Um, so given this, um, I established that the constitutive harm view fails to conceptualize genetic disposition as a harm. Finally, I looked at the harmful conditions view, um, which I believe necessarily encompasses the dynamic nature of genetic harm. And this is because whilst genetic harm comes into existence at conception, the effects of such harm on an individual's interest are not actualized until later life. So Kahn defines harmful conditions as the outcomes of acts that increase the likelihood of future harm. So I labeled genetic disposition as a vulnerability to future harm. Um, so far, I had established that genetic disposition is a vulnerability to future harm. And therefore, in accordance with the harm principle, relatives are permitted access to genetic information against the wishes of the proband. Next, I moved to consider how much of the genetic information relatives should have access to. Um, so whilst I did agree with the harmful conditions view, I found the view to be lacking. Um, and so I argued that the harms that occur in the future due to genetic disposition extend beyond the condition that it confers to include the psychological, social and financial impact on the interests of the individual. And I labelled these the broader harms of genetic disease. Um, by this definition, any genetic disposition has the potential to be a vulnerability to future harm or indeed a serious harm. This makes predicting the severity of the genetic harm difficult for clinicians. For this reason, um, I then argued that there is good ground to remove the requirement for clinicians to predict whether the genetic harm is serious in order to justify breaching confidentiality. Given this, I proposed the safeguarding against genetic vulnerabilities model, which permits immediate biological relatives access to all genetic information generated by the proband as the rule. And then finally, um, in light of my work, I offered three um, recommendations. So the first was to implement the safeguarding against genetic vulnerabilities model. Um, and this is because it demonstrates the individual based variation um, associated with genetic disease, thereby exemplifying the difficulty in categorizing serious genetic harm, which I believe the GMC implicitly referenced by not actually um, categorizing what they mean by serious. The second is to introduce population wide genetic education. Um, and this is because it would correct the public's erroneous belief in genetic determinism and reduce the likelihood of genetic discrimination for the individual. Um, and then thirdly, um, to revise genetic counseling provision to include the broader harms. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much, Amal. That was really, really interesting. And I thought you did a fantastic job of narrowing 12,000 words down into a 15 minute presentation, which is not an easy task to do. Um, so thank you and well done. Um, so just going to ask you a few questions um, just following on from your proposal. Um, I think uh, confidentiality is a really tricky issue and it's something that uh, I teach on one of my modules and I think um, it's something that medical students in particular are quite tend to be quite interested in because it's uh, likely to come up in their careers that they might have to face dilemmas um, where they 
need to decide whether to keep something confidential or to disclose it. Um, so in general, um, uh, doctors and other medical healthcare professionals should keep things confidential as you outlined. Um, but there are some exceptions. So the, uh, the GMC allows for um, uh, healthcare professionals to make disclosures in the case of uh, serious crimes being disclosed or the potential to commit a serious crime and also um, for serious communicable diseases. Um, do you think that your model that you've proposed in this dissertation uh, provides a kind of better way for thinking about um, those kind of cases? Um, yeah, so um, I, I do think that someone could argue possibly that my um, work could be extended to include serious crime um, and serious communicable diseases. Um, and I think that's because similar to genetic um, harm, the GMC justify, like you said, non-consensual disclosure with the caveat of it being serious. Um, however, I don't I don't think that it could be justified to breach all instances of um, serious, uh, so just all instances, sorry, of communicable diseases or crime. Um, and that's because I think it's a lot easier to predict um, whether or not the crime or the communicable disease would be serious to the relatives or the individuals that the clinician would be considering um, disclosure to. Um, so, for example, crime is stratified already by the judiciary system um, where criminals will receive different sentences depending on the severity of the crime committed. Um, and similarly, with um, sort of infectious diseases and communicable diseases, again, we're quite easy. It's quite easy to um, be explicit and predict whether or not that will cause serious harm to the individual. So um, whilst I can see someone could argue that, I don't think necessarily that it could be used to justify saying um, to relatives that we will give you all the information, um, because I think it's a lot easier to predict whether or not it will be serious for them. Thank you. That's uh, cleared that up for me. Um, so the, the other thing I wanted to ask you about um, is the model you propose, the safeguarding against genetic vulnerabilities model, uh, is based on preventing harm. Um, the other model that you discussed, the joint access model, proposes giving relatives access to the same genetic information. But this model is based on ideas of justice. Do you think that the safeguarding model is stronger because it's based on the notion of harm rather than justice? Or is there another reason to prefer it? Um, I do think um, the safeguarding model being based on um, harm does lend more support to it. Um, and I think this is because um, unlike the joint account model, um, the safeguarding against genetic vulnerability model does recognise the value of confidentiality and the right to privacy, although these principles aren't considered absolute under it. Um, so I think the, the importance of it recognising these things is that um, because you consider it as being private and sensitive information, it encourages a clinician to um, perhaps only disco, uh, disclose information that pertains to disease causing mutations and therefore to limit the um, information that's given to relatives by its relevance. Um, and also, um, I think it requires the clinician to consider the family rather than just the proband as the unit of care. 
um, which aligns sort of with current guidelines and legislation that do promote non -contagion. Thank you. So it sounds like there's quite a few reasons there to prefer that, that model. I think so. Um, I just had one final thought, um, which was, so if we do abandon the view of uh, confidentiality regarding genetic information being an absolute mm -hmm. right, that I, I was thinking about the implications that this could have. So suppose somebody goes to be tested to see if they have a genetic disposition to a certain condition mm -hmm. and the doctor tells them that if they do have the genetic disposition, she will have to tell their relatives. And because the person doesn't want this, they refuse to have the test. Mm -hmm. um, so this would mean then that not only would the relatives not get that information, which could be useful to them, but also that the person themselves won't know that they have the gen genetic disposition or a genetic condition which could be perhaps quite detrimental to them mm -hmm. um, do you think this is a, a likely implication of um, abandoning the the idea of absolute confidentiality and does this make you worry about your proposal or do you think it could be mitigated or perhaps just isn't really a, a big concern yeah so um with regards to the likelihood of this happening, um, there have been studies that have shown in most cases, individuals who get genetically tested are happy um, for the treating clinician to inform relatives. Um, however, of course, I think it does remain that on rare occasions, individuals won't consent. Um, so I think with regards to likelihood, it is something that we do need to look at because clinicians will at some point possibly have to navigate these sort of decisions. But again, I don't think it's something that would be particularly common. Um, and um, to the second part of your question, um, well, does the, what does it mean for the proposal? I think um, there are similar instances where individuals must choose whether or not to get tested um, based on um, the clinician's duty to tell relatives. So, for example, if an individual goes to get tested for HIV, um, they know that if it does come back positive, the clinician is permitted to tell their relatives. Um, and regardless of this, individuals continue to get tested um, every day for things like HIV and other communicable diseases. Um, so we can, that's sort of an analogous um, situation that we can look to to see whether or not people would continue to get tested. Although I agree, it's not exactly the same, but it can be used to inform um, the proposal here. Um, and then I think also, um, it's important to consider the possibility of malicious reasons for not consenting to disclosure. So um, there have been instances where individuals, particularly those who either are estranged from or maybe feuding with their relatives, um, have refused consent for disclosure in order to deny them the access to the benefits of knowing that information rather than out of concern for their own confidentiality, which I've sort of discussed throughout the dissertation. Um, so I think this also adds favour to the model because it considers that as being an additional form of harm that relatives might have to endure. Um, so with regards to mitigating these things, so I think by recognising him, that's the first step. Um, and then similar to, like I said, HIV testing and things, I think it's important to have sort of a qualified conception of confidentiality um, where clinicians are obligated to tell people before they come in to be tested um, in advance of conducting the test that the information um, will be disclosed to their relatives and then it's up to them to make an informed decision as they would do with any other sort of um, medical decision that they'd have to do 
whether or not they would prefer the utility of knowing the test or perhaps their privacy. And again, you wouldn't necessarily need to give the individual's name within the family um, to the relatives. It would just be that they have an increased risk because somebody um, has, it would remain anonymous, has tested positive for X disease and therefore they recommend coming in for tests themselves. Thank you. Yeah, that certainly allayed my concerns there. Um, and that was a, a great analogy about uh, serious communicable diseases. I hadn't thought about that um, because it's always difficult to know what exactly implications will be of changes. But that's that's a good analogy that we can look to. Um, and yeah, I hadn't really thought about malicious reasons for wanting to just wanting to keep on to that kind of information. Um, but you are right that that's a possibility. Um, and there probably will be few cases, I suppose, where people aren't happy for the information to be disclosed. So perhaps it's not uh, such a big worry. Um, and like you say as well, it would only the they would know in advance that this information was going to be shared. Yeah. Um, so I think I'm I'm convinced anyway of um, your <laughs> proposal. Um, so. Um, well done. It was. Um, I think you you outlined it really well, um, and um, also uh, managed to respond to my uh, concerns very clearly. Um, did you have anything else you wanted to add or discuss? No, I Ellie? think that's everything. Thank you for having me um, on the podcast. It's been a really good experience. Great. Well, we'll we'll wrap up there. Then I know that you've got a. Uh, study day today in the middle of a busy placement so I don't want to take up more of your time but I'd just like to thank you again for coming on the podcast today I'm sure people will really enjoy listening to this so thank you very much Amal thank you and bye-bye for me as well the idea pod is produced by the interdisciplinary ethics applied center at the university of Leeds Find out more at ahc.leeds.ac.uk slash ethics. Music composed and conducted by Josh Armitage.